Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. This is the week of the month on the Beeson Podcast when we listen to a sermon. And the sermon we're going to hear today was actually preached by me at Beeson Divinity School, the Church of the Undivided Christ. My colleague, Dr. Smith, said it's something that we ought to use on this series, and so we are. And Dr. Smith, tell us what I'm going to say. Dean Timothy George, this is my favorite Timothy George sermon. I've been listening to you now for about 20 years, even before you came here. This is my favorite. Um, the Church of the Undivided Christ, you thoroughly, thoroughly, sir, walk through uh, this text treating, in fact, not only this text, but all of uh, First Corinthians, because you want to show to us that the problems that the Corinthian church had are the same problems that we're having today, so that we see ourselves as the church that is divided and Christ is undivided. It's very interesting that you break down your sermon uh, in Three segments, three questions, all of them coming right out of the text, like we teach it here, sir, at Beeson Divinity School. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? And uh, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Uh, Then you have these um, three penetrating questions alongside of that, which comes from your favorite text of Scripture and Augustine's favorite text of Scripture. Um, Who made you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive and why are you boasting? And then, sir, uh, you move to the, the Richard Baxter, the great Puritan's um, dictum of things that are essential, there must be unity, things that are not essential, there must be liberty, and in all things there must be charity. So it's a Trinitarian structure all the way through. I think it's quite polemical that you juxtapose to put alongside of each other um, the 21st century church slash Reformation church with uh, the Corinthian church in Paul's day. The strength of this sermon for me is that you not only offer uh, the diagnosis, but you also present the prescription. And the prescription, of course, is unity in Christ. You open up with this wonderful statement about certain uh, events will turn the course of history. And then you move on and you show how that's true, not only in those contemporary and um, historical events in a secular sense, but also um, in what has happened uh, in the church, particularly when it comes to the cross of Christ. My final observation about what you did was that uh, you captivated uh, the congregation all the way through because the subject was relevant. You're dealing with uh, division and schism and showing that the only answer for that is Christ and close in a very effective way and in just saying, well, you don't know whether they will allow us to sing um, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ the Lord, but we sung it to conclude. Uh, very powerfully delivered, well-arranged, artistically designed message, sir. Thank you. Well, here's a sermon on Christian unity from Beeson Divinity School, the Church of the Undivided Christ. This is a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 10, 
And I'm reading tonight from Eugene Peterson's translation of the New Testament. I have a serious concern to bring up with you, my friends, using the authority of Jesus, our Master. I'll put it as urgently as I can. You must get along with each other. You must learn to be considerate of one another, cultivating a life in common. I bring this up because some from Chloe's family brought a most disturbing report to my attention, that you're fighting among yourselves. I'll tell you exactly what I was told. You're all picking sides, going around saying, I'm on Paul's side, or I'm for Apollos, or Peter is my man, or I'm in the Messiah group. I ask you, Has the Messiah been chopped up in little pieces so we can each have a relic all our own? Was Paul crucified for you? Was a single one of you baptized in Paul's name? I was not involved with any of your baptisms except for Crispus and Gaius, and on getting this report, I'm sure glad I wasn't. At least no one can go around saying he was baptized in my name, Come to think of it, I also baptized Stephanus' family, but as far as I can recall, that's it. God didn't send me out to collect a following for myself, but to preach the message of what he has done, collecting a following for him. And he didn't send me to do it with a lot of fancy rhetoric of my own, lest the powerful action at the center, Christ on the cross be trivialized into mere words. The message that points to Christ on the cross seems like sheer silliness to those hell-bent on destruction. But for those on the way of salvation, it is the dynamic power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our strength and Redeemer. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Be seated. Sometimes the course of history turns on a single decision. By the end of 1940, Adolf Hitler and the German army had conquered Western Europe. Denmark, Holland, Belgium, France had fallen like dominoes. England was teetering on the brink. When suddenly from Berlin, word came from Hitler, go east instead of west. The whole German war machine was put in reverse the attack on Russia began. Military historians say that decision cost Hitler the war as the German army was ground to pieces in the bloody snows of Stalingrad. A decision no less important in the history of the world was made around the year 50 A.D. 
when the Apostle Paul decided to go west instead of east. On his second missionary journey, he had come to a crossroads. His plan was to go east into the provinces of Bithynia and Pontus, but somehow the door was closed. Luke says in Acts 16, the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go that way. It's interesting how the Lord has a way of upsetting our itineraries, of rewriting the road map. He wouldn't let him go that way. Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia. Come over and help us. Help us. And so he goes west instead of east. And the course of the gospel flows into Europe and eventually North America instead of to India and China in the east. First Philippi, then Thessalonica and Berea and down the coast of Greece to Athens, to Mars Hill, and finally to Corinth. Paul brings the message of Jesus Christ to Corinth. You all know about Corinth. You know all about Corinth. That bustling seaport at the vortex of the shipping lanes between east and west, Corinth the most popular port of call in the Mediterranean world. Somebody said everything that wasn't tied down came loose and eventually found its way to Corinth. Here, Roman power met Greek culture mingled with Oriental mysticism and Gnostic spirituality. In Corinth, the drinking was hard, the sex was sizzling, the economy was corrupt, and the politics was cutthroat. Corinth was a postmodern town before postmodern was cool. Corinth. <laughs> and here in this cauldron of sensuality and syncretism, a church was born. Paul says it's the church of God in Corinth. For Paul was not only the evangelist who planted that church, he was its founding pastor. He stayed with them for 18 months, which would have qualified him for the annuity board. <laughs> now, if you want to know why First and Second Corinthians is so filled with emotion and passion, you have to remember, Paul knew these people. Uh, he had shared their joys and their sorrows. He knew their struggles and their heartaches as only a pastor can know such things. How else are we to understand a verse like this from 2 Corinthians? I wrote you, he says, out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Make room for me in your hearts, he pleads. I speak to you as my children. Those are the words of a pastor to his people. And what has so broken Paul's heart? What prompted him to write 1 Corinthians is the report he has received that this church of God in Corinth, the church he planted and nurtured and fathered in God. This church is 
hopelessly divided. They're at each other's throats over all kinds of issues. Beginning at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and working our way back to the front, chapter 1, I have counted 12 major church fights that were going on in Corinth. Many of them with a very familiar ring to our churches today. Chapter 16, it's money. Take up the offering, he says. And later on in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we learn something of the problem. Some of them were welching on the pledges they had made. Others of them were giving out of the wrong motive, out of necessity instead of generosity. The money. Well, chapter 15, it's, it's eschatology. Second coming. And the arguments they had make our little debates about pre, post, and ah look trivial. Some of them were baptizing for the dead, whatever that is. Dr. Thielman can tell us. Some of them had collapsed the future into the present. They said the resurrection had already happened. There was going to be no second coming of Christ. Eschatology. You go back to chapter 14. Wow, what a chapter. Talk about worship wars. Everybody has a hymn. Everybody has a revelation. Everybody has a tambourine. It's all right here. What about speaking in tongues? What about women preachers? It's all here. They're fighting about these things. Chapter 12, spiritual gifts, healing, miracles, prophecy. Chapter 11, what are the women going to wear to church? Veils or not veils? Chapter 10 and 11, Lord's Supper. Rich members gorging themselves at dinner while the poor go hungry. And they come to the Lord's table and make a mockery of it. Chapter 8 and 9, food offered to idols, which at one level is the question of how a Christian is to live in a culture of paganism. And at another level, it's the question of how Christians are to be sensitive to one another in their conscientious scruples. Chapter 7, Oh, this is a chapter to upset Dr. Dobson. Divorce, marriage, sexuality. Chapter 6, they're taking each other to court. A litigious church in a litigious world. Chapter 5, sexual immorality. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul deals explicitly both with sins of homosexuality and sins of heterosexuality. He does. Chapter 4, pride, arrogance. Chapter 1, 2, and 3, partisanship and fighting. I think this church sounds like us. You know, church will fight about anything. I was in Cuba a few weeks ago. They have worship wars down there too. You know what they fight about? Whether you can clap in church. Some say no. And the ones who say no, wave. They wave. I finished preaching, everybody wave. I got sent to a waving church. My friend got sent to a clapping church. He had more fun than I did. 
divided over that. They had their parties and cliques in Corinth. We have ours. In Corinth, they had four parties. There was a Paul party. Now, you knew there'd be a Paul party. He founded the church. People loved Paul. Some people did. There was a Paul party. They had a favorite word. You know what it was? Faith. Paul was always talking about faith. By grace are you saved through faith. We're justified by faith. Faith. It's the faith party. They had a favorite city, too. Antioch. That's the city that sent out Paul. Antiochian Christianity was popular with the Paul party. But there was a Peter party, too. Some of them loved him so much they used his Aramaic name, Cephas. They had a favorite word, law, law, Torah. They had a favorite city, Jerusalem. That's where the first apostles were. That was the mother church. And then a third party, the Apollos party. They had a favorite word, wisdom, Sophia, wisdom. Their city was Alexandria, where Philo, the great teacher, had lived, synthesizing Hebrew wisdom and Greek philosophy, the Apollos party. And then, strangely, a fourth party had developed, the Christ party. They had a word, too, freedom. We're free! We're free from all of these other things, they said. Their city? Well, it sure wasn't Antioch. sure wasn't Alexandria. Nor was it that old Jerusalem back in Judea where Jesus died. It was the new Jerusalem, heaven, where Jesus lives. We're the Christ party. We're the ones who really belong to Christ. We're not so sure about the rest of you. See, their confidence wasn't in Christ. It was in themselves. Their orthodoxy, their uprightness, their status. We're the Christ party. Paul says, listen, wait a minute. The fact that you belong to Christ, the fact that you're a child of the King, makes grace more immeasurable. It does not make you more memorable. You know, Calvin was expelled from Geneva in 1538. Kicked out of the city by the city council. He went to Strasbourg. Three years later, they called him back to Geneva. And he came back on a Sunday morning and he entered the cathedral of Saint-Pierre, climbed the stairs to the pulpit. Everybody thought they were going to get an I told you so sermon. Place was packed. City council was there. Everybody was there. You know what Calvin did? He walked into the cathedral and into the pulpit and he opened his Bible to the very verse he had left off preaching three years before and he picked up with an expository sermon from the Word of God. See, the Reformation wasn't about Calvin. It was about the Word of God. It wasn't about Luther either. Luther said, the first thing I ask is that people should not make use of my name, should not call themselves Lutherans, but Christians. How did I, poor, stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? All these divisions in the church. 
10,000 reformers like so many moles have plowed all the Bible and cut it in holes, and each has his church at the end of his trace, built up as he thinks of the subjects of grace. Why does disunity in the body of Christ so grieve the heart of God? What does Jesus think when he looks down on all of our petty exclusivisms and partisan competitions and personal rivalries? I think his heart must break. I'm sure the Holy Spirit is grieved. What does Paul say to these warring factions in Corinth? Well, you might have expected him to say... Hey guys, you need to back the party that bears my name. Those Pauline Christians. These other people, Peter, Apollos, so-called Christ party. They're interlopers. I'm the founding pastor. You better get your friends to come out and vote for me at business meeting. But instead, he says this. Come down from your wisdom. Come down from your self-conceit. Come down from your partisan arrogance and pride and condescension to your brothers and sisters. If you want to sail under the Pauline flag, come down into the foolishness and ignominy of Christ. Come down here to the cross. For all of our pretensions are relativized. Where God alone is great. Where Jesus alone is Lord. That's what he says. He asks three questions. Is Christ divided? I like the way Eugene Peterson translates this. I think it's very accurate. This word divided is a word that has to do with party or sect. You could translate this question, is Christ a partisan? Is Christ sectarian? Peterson says, has the Messiah been chopped up in little pieces so we can each have a relic of our own? You're acting as though Christ were a commodity you could buy at the butcher shop chunk of meat to be hacked and diced up and passed around. The church of the New Testament, Paul says, is the church of the undivided Christ. Oh, it's true in the world there are many gods and many lords, 1 Corinthians 8, 5. But we believe in one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One Lord Jesus Christ, one Savior, one Redeemer. Is Christ divided? You see, there's a direct connection between ecclesiology and Christology. And when you live in rancor and bitterness and enmity with one another, you're not only sinning against your brother and sister, you're sinning against Christ. This is a lesson Paul learned on the first day he became a Christian. The road to Damascus. That blinding vision. The voice, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? 
Well, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting these miserable Christians down here. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? When you do it unto the least of these, you do it to me. There is a vital, organic, inviolable connection between ecclesiology and Christology. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? That's the second question. Why does he bring in the cross? Because the cross is where all the spreading stops. The cross is where all the bragging stops. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Why does he bring baptism into it? He's talking about unity. Surely this is something that divides. A few years ago, Michael Green wrote a book about baptism. He called it The Water That Divides. Do we baptize infants or not? How much water do we use? Do we sprinkle, pour, or completely immerse? It's the water that divides. We still divide over these questions. But, but that's not what's at stake in this passage. The question here is not about the style or the mode or the qualifications for baptism. The question here is about whose name were you baptized into? Now, in the early church, baptism signified the transfer of loyalty from, from one realm into another. And so when we read those early baptismal liturgies from Cyril of Jerusalem and Tertullian, they describe that time when the Christian about to be baptized comes to the point of commitment of baptism and he's gone through the catechesis and all of that. And there, there comes a point where the Christian about to be baptized faces to the west, the direction in which the sun goes down, the direction of darkness. And he does something very strange. He spits three times in the direction of the darkness. He's spitting in the face of the devil. And he says, I renounce you, O Satan, and all of your pomp. And then he turns to the east, direction in which the sun comes up. And he throws out his arms and he says, I embrace you, O Son of Righteousness, my Savior, my King. That's what baptism is about. Whose banner are you marching under? Not only an individual act of faith, it's an identification with the people of God, with all of those who belong to Jesus Christ by faith. And so to practice disunity in the body of Christ is to deny the most fundamental meaning of baptism. Oh, you need, you need to understand what a, what a powerful sense of the church as the body of Christ is at work here. Not like a body. The church is the body of Christ. 
We've lost that. You know what we do on Sunday morning? We get to a certain place in the church, we need a little break in the order of worship. We come to that place where we we say hello to all the visitors and greet everybody. My friend calls it the turn, meet, greet, be sweet, and don't step on my feet ritual. Now, I'm not against this. We do this in my church. We do every Sunday. I'm not against this. It's a long way from the kiss of peace, I think. But I'm not against this. But the, but the reality of the church has got to be more than that. What about discerning the body? What is the way to true unity in the body of Christ? Well, it's not to be purchased at the expense of moral purity. It's not. Paul says a lot about that in 1 Corinthians. He calls them the saints of God, called to be holy. Unity is not to be purchased at the expense of theological integrity either. Recent years I've been involved in a movement called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. It's a group of Roman Catholic and evangelical theologians. We meet together from time to time to pray together, to study together, and to wrestle together with the hard issues that separate us, still separate us, 450 years after the Reformation. Some people say, why, why do you do that? I mean, just sweep them away. Why don't, why don't you focus on the environment? Focus on something you can all agree on. Don't wrestle with those thorny theological issues. Cardinal Ratzinger has said some very wise words. He said, our quarreling ancestors were in reality much closer to each other when in all of their disputes they still knew they could only be servants of one truth, which must be acknowledged as being as great and pure as it has been intended for us by God. The way to unity is not to relativize theological integrity because unity is never purchased at the expense of truth. It's not. And neither is it purchased at the expense of genuine diversity in the body of Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 is all about. Unity is not uniformity. What is the way to unity? Well, in 1 Corinthians, it's three things. It's the way of grace. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. This is my favorite verse in all the Bible. Every now and then I'll be speaking at a Bible conference somewhere. Some young person come up and ask me to sign their Bible. I'm always glad to do it, but I always put down my favorite verse, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Nobody's ever read that verse. And occasionally somebody will come up and say, Are you sure you meant this? Isn't this the wrong verse? No, it's the right verse. Go home and read it. It's my favorite verse. It was St. Augustine's favorite verse in his battle with the Pelagians. This is what it says. Three questions. For who made you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? Think about that. Do you have anything that you did not receive? And the third question. If you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? It's grace. And when we realize this, there's no room for that bickering, that 
kind of backbiting, fighting, raising a banner of partisanship and super-spirituality. Grace erases all of that. That's the way to unity. It's also the way of love. We sang that hymn based on 1 Corinthians 13. There's another chapter in the Bible that has a lot about love. It's John 13. John 13, Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Before he died, Francis Schaeffer wrote a little book called The Mark of the Christian. It's a wonderful book. In which he says, he makes a startling statement, a shocking statement, but I think it's true based on John 13. Francis Schaeffer says, Jesus gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are true Christians on the basis of our observable love toward one another. He doesn't say that if I fail in my love, that means I'm not a true Christian. But he says, Jesus gives the world the right to judge. Whether or not we are true Christians on the basis of our observable love toward one another. A few years ago, I got a call from former President Jimmy Carter. He said, would you be willing to meet with me and some other leaders in our denomination just to talk and pray and see if there would be any way we can, we can find some things to stand together on? I said, sure, I'd be glad to do that. We had a couple of meetings. Discussions were frank, brutally frank, but productive and good. And at the end of the meeting, we produced a little statement. Very simple, very basic. You know, we said we'd try not to say any bad things about one another. We said we'd pray for one another. We said whenever there was an area that did not violate our conscience and we could work with one another, we'd try to do that. Find some common things as Christian brothers we could do together. Nothing much ever came of that, but it was the right thing to do. It honored Christ. And President Carter said at the conclusion of those meetings that I've, I've met with people all around the world trying to bring reconciliation and peace. I mean, here's the man that brought Sadat and Begin together. Camp David. He said, I've, I've never encountered anything more difficult and trying to bring warring brothers and sisters in Christ together. I was reminded of what Mahatma Gandhi said before he died. He said, there was a time in my life when I seriously considered the claims of the Christian faith. He said, there was a time when I wavered between Hinduism and Christianity. And I think I would have become a Christian had it not been for Christians. Francis Schaeffer says Jesus gives the world the right to decide whether we are true Christians or not on the basis of our observable love to one another. It's the way of grace, it's the way of love, and then, well, it's the way of the gospel. When he gets to the end of 1 Corinthians, he's dealt with all these tough issues, 
What does he say in the opening verses of that famous passage? Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. The gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. I passed on to you as a first importance. Didn't say other things were not important too, but this is a first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. This is the way to unity. The way of grace, the way of love, the way of the Gospel. The older I get, the more I like that old Puritan divine, Richard Baxter. He gave us that famous phrase that we use a lot here at Beeson Divinity School. He said, in things that are necessary, that are essential, that are of first importance, let us have unitas. He said, in other matters that are not essential, that are secondary, tertiary, let us practice libertas. But in all things, let us always advance caritas, love. Richard Baxter was hard to pin down. He was ordained in the Church of England, but they kicked him out of the Church of England. He was a pedo-baptist, but he had a lot of Baptist friends that got him into trouble with the non-pedo-baptists. He was censured by both the Arminians and the hot anti-Arminians, as they were called. Hard to pin down. Somebody asked him one day what party he belonged to. He said, well, I don't know what party to call me. He says, I'm a Christian. Just a mere Christian. You want to know what sect or party I am of? I am against all sects and dividing parties. But if they will call mere Christians by the name of the party because they take up with mere Christianity, that's what I believe in. That's the group I'm with. The church founded by Jesus Christ, His body, which He purchased with His own blood. Well, look at us here tonight. Your sermon is by a jack-leg, fundamentalist, ecumenical Southern Baptist. Your invocator is a Scottish Covenanter Presbyterian. Your scripture reader is a female Church of God minister. We have a lot of groups here. Here's the Wesley group. There's the Calvin group. There are a few Lutherans back there. I see some Cranmerites. We're a mess. But you know, this is what heaven's going to be like. When we gather around the throne of God from every nation and kindred and tribe and language group and nation and denomination, and we sing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Just mere Christians. 
I don't know if they're going to let us use a lot of these choruses and things we sing down here up in heaven. Brother Robert, I just don't know. But I do believe they'll let us sing hymn number 350 up there. And whether they do or not, we're going to sing it down here. It's our closing hymn. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Let's stand as we sing. been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.